morning. Good to see all of you here. Uh, we're going to jump into Esther. We're now in week four of our journey through this Old Testament book. Much has already happened so far, but I just want to briefly recap kind of where we have been thus far in the first three chapters. So this story is occurring in the kingdom of Persia, and King Ahasuerus is the ruler, and we learned how his wife, the queen, Vashti, refused to come before him and those others that he was trying to impress. Vashti seemingly didn't want to be ogled at by drunken men, which seems reasonable, right? So a search began for a new queen. King Ahasuerus was enraged by this action. He said, she will not be my queen anymore. And so they began this search for a new queen. Many women were taken from their homes and given extensive beauty treatments so they could go spend a night with the king and see if he would like to crown them as queen. For over a year, no queen was found, but then a Jewish woman named Esther had her turn with the king, and she found favor with King Ahasuerus. So Esther was crowned queen, and her uncle Mordecai functioned as her parent, and he was quite concerned for her, so he would frequently come and visit her where she was in the king's quarters. And in one of his visits, Mordecai learned of a plot to kill the king. There's going to be more on that in a later week. But last week, we were introduced to a man named Haman. Haman was one of King Ahasuerus's officials. And he provided for us a distinct picture of pure evil. And to show how insane much evil is, Haman made it his sole pursuit to kill all Jewish people in Persia. And the reason for this? While he had been paraded through the streets of the capital city of Susa, and a man named Mordecai refused to bow down to him. And so Haman lost it. Because this one guy would not bow down to him, he sought to kill a whole ethnic group, all of the Jews within Persia. And so a day was invoked by King Ahasuerus in which all Persians were allowed to kill Jewish people. And after they had killed them, they could then take all of their stuff. It may sound so crazy to our modern ears, but this was the reality for Jewish people living in Persia at this time. And with this decree the king and Haman sat down to drink together while the whole city of Susa was thrown into chaos, especially the Jews. And this brings us to chapter 4. And so let me read Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. 
but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and to say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this ongoing development in this story. I pray in these moments that we have together that you would communicate the hope of the gospel to us that we would be able to see pointers to Jesus in and through Esther chapter 4, and that ultimately our faith in Jesus would be built. So have your way in this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so one of the unique aspects of the book of Esther that we've mentioned a number of times already in this series is that God is never mentioned, not once, in the book of Esther. Yet, we get hints throughout the book that he is at work silently in various ways. And so also, in Esther 4 as well, we get subtle hints the people of Israel still have an arm's length acknowledgement of God. Now we know from the rest of the Bible that many Jews had forsaken God. But God was so wrapped up in the fabric of their nation, whether it's due to superstition, maybe desperation in people, or it was true faith, they at times felt their need for God. And when the edict was given to destroy the Jews, they began fasting. Now, fasting is not eating, okay? And when someone is fasting, they're doing it for a reason, and they're doing it to a person, to a deity. So maybe it's just an impulse on the part of the Jewish people. Maybe it's a good luck charm 
for them, but it infers for us as readers a reminder of God's presence within the psyche of the Jewish people. And a second way in which we see this, uh, just these suggestions that God is still silently at work is when Mordecai is trying to convince Esther to act. He states that if she does not act, that relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. So there is a belief that's rooted in the historical faithfulness of God, that he will deliver his people. Somewhere deep within Jewish people, they believe, they know, they, they've heard the stories. God has delivered his people, and he will deliver his people. So the Jewish people may have moved on from God in many respects. They may have forgotten him, and yet he still lurks. He's still there. He's still pursuing them. Now this may reveal that Israel has taken God for granted. We don't know for sure. Some people probably had. But as we think about how we read this today, it's a reminder for us. We can also take God for granted in our own lives. We can easily slip into thinking that life is about us. It's about our vacation. It's about our concerns. We get really busy in life, and we can wake up one day and feel God is distant, far from us. We bump into trouble, or we feel overwhelmed by the troubles that seemingly are overwhelming this world, because no doubt they are many. But in all of this, we forget what Jesus told us. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. He's basically promising that this will be our reality here in the world. But the tendency for us is when trouble comes is that we tend to look at trouble, to fixate on it, rather than looking at Jesus. And this can lead to spiritual deserts. This can cause us to begin to drown spiritually. We forget the many ways that Jesus has been faithful to us throughout our lives. And we forget the call that comes right after this promise that Jesus makes. He says, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In the face of trouble, we tend to forget Jesus' promises. We forget how Jesus is the embodiment of truth. And we begin to question him. Is he good? Does he care? Does he know what's going on in my life? And what we need when we encounter trouble is what we get in Esther 4. A reminder of what the whole Bible is about. Constant whispers of Jesus. This is a story, the book of Esther, about God's salvation, about how he comes to his people and he delivers them in a powerful, unexpected way. And this is the same story that we hear throughout the whole of the Bible as it builds to the crescendo of Jesus. That is the story of the Bible. God's deliverance leading ultimately to Jesus who ultimately delivers us from sin. 
Now, after Haman deviously convinced Ahasuerus that the Jews should be destroyed and the order was quickly spread through Susa, this is what we talked about last week in chapter 3, the Jewish people just become undone. They were overwhelmed by the troubles of the world in their context in that day. Some of them have may, have may even thought, how could a loving God allow this to happen to us? So what we read today is we read of Mordecai tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes. So this would be a common practice for a Jewish person who was in mourning, who was filled with lament when life has gone the wrong way for them. Sackcloth was uncomfortable to wear. And ashes communicated one's identification with death. Mordecai felt ruined. And so he puts on sackcloth and ashes. In this is a show of humility. It's also a, a form of repentance. It, this, this fact that he's turning toward God in a sense. And, and also there's this plea for help within Mordecai. And as Mordecai is doing this, we also read that he is making a scene, wailing loudly out in the streets. But it wasn't just him. This was also happening with many Jews throughout the Persian provinces. The Jewish people were already feeling the sentence of death that had been proclaimed upon them. They felt the trouble. Now, if we're reading Esther chapters 3 and 4 with a spiritual eye, we should be able to begin to see how this isn't merely just a provocative story. There's much more going on here. Haman is not just some evil dude. He is a picture of evil for us. And the Jewish people, though it's easy to read this in a way where we see them as innocent bystanders who are unfairly affected by what's going on here, if we're honest, we have to say they're not just innocent bystanders with what's going on here. Is, Israel's history testifies against them. They are not innocent bystanders. And so as we parse through what's going on in this story, and we parse through the whole of the biblical story, what we're reminded of is that Israel is just like Haman. And we've got to apply this personally to ourselves as well. It's not just Israel, it's, it's us as well. We are like Haman as well. Now this can be a hard thing for us to stomach. I was even having a conversation with one of my children last night and we were talking about how some people's sin is maybe worse than others' sin. But then I brought in this example of Haman and how we are like Haman. Israel the whole of Israel is like Haman. And the way in which we are like Haman is this. Every day, we seek to have others bow down to us. This is what Haman did, right? He's paraded through the streets. He expected everyone to bow down to him. And Mordecai didn't. 
And when Mordecai did not do that, he became enraged. Similarly, we want to get our own way. We want to be in control. We want to do what we want, when we want. And when we don't get those things, sometimes we become enraged. Maybe outwardly, maybe we're seething inwardly. We are like Haman. But you know who else we're like? We're also like the people who bowed down to Haman as well as we pursue our own selfish initiatives in life. And so, what's clear from this story is that we, like Israel, are a people who are in deep need. Whether we understand it's from our sin or not, we feel the hopelessness that pervades this world. And we understand everyone, or if we don't understand, we should understand, everyone is in trouble because we're under the thumb of sin. And so, in one sense, Mordecai may be an example of how we need to repent, of how we need to turn away from our sin and towards Jesus. But here's the thing. We don't need a mere example of how not to bow down to things other than Jesus. Because what our lives demonstrate is that we can't stop. We keep running after other things, than Jesus. We need someone who will bow down for us, who will lay their life down for us, who will take upon himself our sin and offer us forgiveness, who will pay the price and purchase our forgiveness. That's what we need. We need someone who will save us. And that's Jesus one way in which the story is pulling the whole of the biblical story forward, pointing us to Jesus. One final comment here on how this ties with the whole biblical story. The Bible is clear. Satan wants to destroy Jesus and his church. Satan wants to destroy God's people. Haman, as a picture of evil, is one more in a long line of people wanting to annihilate God's people. This yells at us again how Esther is not just a solitary story. It is very much connected to the rest of the Bible. It is playing its part in telling the same story, the gospel story, something much bigger than just itself. And this is what the Bible does over and over and over. It keeps telling us this same story. We are sinners in need of of a savior. So Esther is informed that Mordecai is distraught, but she isn't aware of why he is. So she sent him clothes so he would be respectable. But she also then inquired as to why he was acting this way, and urgently Mordecai informs Esther and he is insistent that she go before the king to plead for his favor. And when Esther hears what Mordecai is commanding, she hesitates, as many of us probably would do the same thing if we were in that spot. And we read on in this story, and we hear that if Esther were to go in front of the king, there is a high likelihood that she would be killed for doing so. Okay, so what I want to do now is I want to just kind of hit pause, and I want to look at two really subtle details within this story 
that help point us to Jesus. Okay? So the first detail that I want to mine into here a little bit is for us to consider Mordecai's garments. He was wearing sackcloth. Okay? This is an itchy, uncomfortable garment. And so what Esther does then is she sends him garments so he would clothe himself. But Mordecai refuses to do so. Now, you might wonder, like, how in the world does that point to Jesus? These subtle details actually preach spiritual truths to us. In some senses, we see Esther and Mordecai as types of Jesus, forerunners, whispers of Jesus. They do things that Jesus is going, going to come and do, but Jesus is going to do them to the fullest. He's going to do them finally, fully, and completely. He is the final answer. So Esther offers garments that are intended to cover Mordecai's shame and to offer him comfort. That's what she's doing as she's offering these garments. What Mordecai is wearing is something that he has purchased. But he's being offered clothes or garments that are coming from another, that are being given to him. Spiritually speaking, we need to be clothed by another. And we can read about this in numerous spots in the New Testament. One spot we can go to is Romans 13, 14, where it talks about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, when we believe in Jesus, we are united with him. And when we are united with Jesus, there's this picture like we are robed with him. And what's really important here is we're robed with his righteousness, with what he has done for us. But what we've got to understand is that this has to be given to us. We don't go out and purchase this. It's given to us. So our clothing, metaphorically speaking, our works are never enough for us. Our works will leave us discomforted, like Mordecai. Our works will leave us longing. We need Jesus' works. We need to be robed in the clothing of Jesus' grace. As Mordecai rejects the clothing from Esther, we are reminded how we oftentimes can reject grace, reject what Jesus offers to us. But also we're reminded of how Jesus rejected his own comfort for us so that we might be clothed in something that covers our shame and that comforts us. Okay, so we've got Mordecai's garments. The second thing that I want to mine into here a little bit is the place that Esther was forbidden to go. She and all men and women were forbidden to enter into the inner court of the king. Now some of you maybe, you, you know where I'm going to go with this. In the Old Testament temple, it was the inner court that was prohibited for anyone to enter. The Holy of Holies. 
the only person that could enter that room was the high priest. And the high priest could only enter that room but once a year when they offered a sacrifice for sins on the Day of Atonement. If anyone entered that space, that room, they would die. They would not come out. As Esther readies herself to go into that room where the king sits, she is imaging Jesus for us. The book of Hebrews is really helpful with a lot of this. Hebrews 9.12 says, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places. Okay, so this is speaking of how Jesus is entering into that holy place, into the holy of holies, into a place we cannot go on our own, and yet a place we need to go. So the beautiful picture of Jesus here is that he becomes the high priest, and Hebrews talks about this at length. Jesus becomes the high priest for us, but he doesn't just become the high priest, he also becomes the sacrifice as well. So the way in which he enters into the most holy place, the holy of holies, is through his blood. And that's what actually, if you read on in Hebrews 9, it says explicitly that Jesus is going into that place through his blood. And in this, this shows how he himself is better in every way. Jesus went where no one could go, and he died in that place. And he came back from death. And this is exactly the hint and the whisper that we're getting in the story of Esther. She's leading us there. She's leading us to the cross and to the empty tomb. So when we look at Esther, she is endeavoring to make a sacrificial act of love, to give of herself to lay her life down for her people. Now, when we read this, this is not a call to a, a moral imperative to be like Esther. That's not how we should read this. The call is to believe in the one that Esther is pointing to. Her life and her actions serve this cosmic purpose of calling God's people to trust in him to deliver his people. That's a call for us. To trust in the one who will deliver his people. So we don't walk into this place this morning to hear a dry, dusty call to do more religious acts. To do another thing. That's not why, why we're here. We, we walk into here as parched people needing to be reminded there is a gushing waterfall of grace that keeps us afloat in the midst of the trouble in this world. Trouble is everywhere. It's paralyzing in a lot of ways. But Jesus has overcome the trouble. Jesus comes to rescue us from the trouble. He saves us from the trouble. And so the cause we're reading Esther 4 is to hear this, to be reminded, to get to Jesus, to rest in him, to understand Jesus is the golden scepter. He extends the golden scepter to us. 
And the way he does it is by extending himself, right? He extends himself to us, and in this, he allows us to boldly approach his throne. With all of our doubts, with all of our hurts, with all of our fears, to boldly approach the throne of grace. And I love how in this story it explicitly says, and I'm going back to our sermon series, Law and Grace. I love how it says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. Esther is going to put her hope in the favor or the grace of the king. Hoping that he will extend the golden scepter to her. But, but in this, she is suggesting many years before Jesus takes on flesh and comes to this earth, that the law is going to be superseded. That something better than the law is going to come. And what that better thing is, is grace through Jesus. There would be an ultimate king who would look upon those who are needy and broken and he would give grace. He would extend the golden scepter. This is the good news of the gospel. As we spiritually limped our way in here this morning, there was a king awaiting us with a smile on his face, ready to give grace. And the words were already on his tongue. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus wants your flourishing. But we've got to understand that our flourishing is not found in the comforts of this world. It's not found in the many things that we chase after it in. It's only found in Jesus. God wants Psalm 30, verse 11 to be ours. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. This is God's desire. Not just to brush over the things that might cause us to put on sackcloth and ashes. He wants to take those things and use them for good. He wants to demonstrate how he is better, bigger than, how he will save no matter what. But I realize we all come here dealing with troubles, varying intensities, varying severities in life, but troubles nonetheless. And I am so grateful for some of you who did just highlight some of your spiritual dryness this past week on Slack, asking for prayer. This is a great thing, and I want to affirm that. But here's what I'm confident of. You, nor any of us, need to be told what we need to do to fix ourselves. What we need to be told is what's been done for us. And this is why we end our sermons in the way we do. 
gospel application is not about what you need to do. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about what you need to rest in, what you need to receive. We don't need to know how to save ourselves. We need to hear about a Savior. We don't need to try to muster up the courage of Esther. We need to trust in Jesus, the Savior that displayed courage and the Savior that Esther is pointing us to. Some of us are dealing with immense trouble right now. Painful relational conflict within our families, within our workplaces. Some of us are dealing with kids who maybe are disobedient, who maybe are exhausting us in a variety of ways. Some of us are dealing with cancer, with doubts, with fear, with loss of various kinds. We're dealing with marital struggles, with depression. Some of us are lonely. And this list could go on and on. So listen to me. We you look at me just for a moment here? Listen to me as I say this. The way we overcome our trouble is through faith in Jesus. That's how we overcome our trouble. He is our overcomer. He is our deliverer. He is what you need in the midst of your troubles. Trouble will always be a part of our story. Jesus promised it. A life void of trouble is not possible. Here in the West, we oftentimes think money can insulate us from it. But money cannot prevent disease. Money cannot heal relationships. Money cannot love you. Trouble will always be here for us. Center Church, I want Jesus to be so much more to you than just a Sunday school answer. I know you might say, I hear this over and over. This is simplistic. This is not an overly simplistic reality. Believing the gospel is not. Jesus is what you are looking for. Jesus is who you are looking for. It's what your soul is panting after. I know this. No matter what your trouble is, I know this this is the reality for every single one of us. We are longing for Jesus. Esther didn't die for her people. She was willing to. But Jesus shows his love for us in that he went all the way to death. His life, death, and resurrection are not throwaway concepts. This is not mundane in any way whatsoever. This is everything. The gospel is everything to us. So maybe we're bored. Maybe we're bored with stuff because we've got lots of it. Maybe we're tired out 
from busyness because we're racing all over the place. Maybe we're discouraged or disillusioned because we've hoped in things that can't withstand the weight of not failing us. Maybe we're chasing after sin. Maybe our thoughts just won't turn off. There are a million things that can trouble us. It's going to be different for all of us. But what I know is that Jesus possesses the life that we long for. Jesus possesses what you are looking for today and tomorrow and next week and next month and next year, all the days of your life. So often in life, we can focus on what we think we need to be fulfilled. We focus on what we don't have rather than what has been given to us. Esther didn't know what would be her end. Would she die? Would her people die? She could focus on all of the what-ifs or uncertainties. But what God had given to her in that moment was courage to take the next step. The ability to look at him and move forward in a terrifying way. And so maybe some of us just need to be able to look back and be reminded who Jesus is and what he has done. And so I would pose to you the question, how has Jesus been kind to you? How has he been kind to you? Maybe you need to tell someone your story of how Jesus has saved you. Tell it to me. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done in your life. How he has been patient with you. How he's being patient with you now. Or maybe we just need to taste some good food and be reminded that this comes from God as well. Or sit in our home and and not focus on all that's wrong with it, but be thankful for the gift that God has given to us. To see the gift of health that we have, have had, celebrate it. And remember this, that every good gift is from above. No matter how small it might be, Every good gift is from above, coming down from the Father. The greatest way we see this is through Jesus, our golden scepter. He is our deliverer. But wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever trouble looks like for you individually, the answer is Jesus. He is the good God who will deliver you. Maybe not in your timing, maybe not in the way that you prefer, but he promises to deliver us.